This is episode 28 of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Sting Broderson. All right. How's everybody doing today? My name is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for the Investors Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson, out in Denmark. And if you haven't noticed yet, uh, I'm trying to get over a cold, and it's just not going so well. I've been having a rough week, and we're still going to do this podcast, but if I sound a little bit different, that's what's going on here. So uh, I just want everybody to know that. So if you hear me squeak, uh, don't be surprised. And don't laugh too hard because I'm probably going to keep it in the uh, podcast and not edit it out just so everyone can get some amusement. But all right. So let's just hop right to it. The uh, episode today is going to be on a book that Stig and I recently read. Uh, And I actually read this book a a while back, uh, reread it uh, just to familiarize myself again with it. Uh, And this is one of those books that it's going to be a lot more advantageous than just reading it once. And the book that we're talking about is the book called Think and Grow Rich. So before we uh, jump into the book and start talking about all the details of it, I want to throw out there that this book was not um, just by Napoleon Hill. This book was a compilation of thoughts by some very powerful people back in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Uh, Specifically, I want to start off with a story of how this book originated. So there's a gentleman named Andrew Carnegie, and I'm sure many people in in the United States know who Andrew Carnegie is. But if you don't, uh, Andrew Carnegie was pretty much the founder of Steel and the development of the Bessemer process. And he lived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And um, in 1901, Andrew Carnegie sold his company, the Steel Company, Andrew Carnegie Steel Company, to J.P. Morgan for $480 million back in 1901. So if you're wondering what the value of that is in today's dollars, that's the equivalent of $310 billion. So that's like three times more valuable than what Bill Gates's net worth is today. Just to kind of give people an idea of who Andrew Carnegie was. So he was one of the most wealthiest people of all time. And what Andrew Carnegie did is he wanted to solicit a journalist to write down his elements and his ideas of what success was all about and how he basically acquired all the wealth that he that he gained. And so Andrew Carnegie solicited the help from a gentleman named Napoleon Hill, who's the author of this book, Think and Grow Rich. And he called Napoleon Hill into his office And Andrew Carnegie said, you know, I really want to write this book on success and I want to, um, you know, capture all the finer elements, all the critical variables that lead to the success of the the wealthiest people in America. And so uh, he ran this idea past Napoleon Hill and uh, Napoleon Hill was really excited. And he says, you know, I'll open up every single door for the top 500 wealthiest people in the United States uh, to help, you know, give you these ideas. And so Napoleon Hills, they're all excited, thinking that he's going to get a, um, you know, a, a huge uh, incentive bonus for uh, signing up to write this for Andrew Carnegie. And then at the very end of Carnegie's pitch to uh, Napoleon Hill, Carnegie says, and uh, you're going to do this completely for free. You're not I'm not going to pay you anything to do this. So what do you say? 
And Napoleon Hill was just kind of taken back. Uh, and he actually wrote about this and talked about this in some of his notes about how he was just like stunned and didn't really know what to say to, to the offer. And uh, after a little bit of time, Napoleon Hill said, um, OK, I'll do it. And he didn't really know why, but he just said, OK, I'll do it. And what was interesting is Andrew Carnegie uh, from underneath of his desk lifted up a clock that he was a stopwatch that he was timing uh, Napoleon Hill. And he said, you had one minute to make that decision or else I wasn't going to uh, continue with the offer. And you made the decision in 46 seconds. So let's go ahead and do this. And so that's kind of how this book got started. That's how this all kicked off, which I thought was an amazing story. So what's even more amazing is Napoleon Hill took on this project. And I think you just heard me squeak. So I'm going to keep that in there just so everyone can get a good laugh. But um, so Napoleon Hill took on this project and he did this over a 20 year period where he was researching and studying all these people that Andrew Carnegie opened the doors to. And in the end, Napoleon Hill ended up writing a 22 volume set of books. So this was not like a simple book like we have right now, this Think and Grow Rich. It was a 22 volume set of books. And in those books, he outlined 17 elements for learning all these variables to success, which were all learnable. They weren't things that you inherently had to possess. They were all things that you could gain through studying and through uh, focus and through doing it consistently. And so this book, this compilation of books was absolutely enormous. And it was really a hard sell, especially during that time in the early 1900s. And so it, it went nowhere, which was kind of interesting. And then uh, Napoleon Hill basically took those volumes and he narrowed it down to a thousand page book uh, and it still went nowhere. And this and the thousand page book, I think, came out right around the Great Depression. It didn't really have much of a market. And then by 1936, the publisher took that thousand page book and they narrowed it down to 250 pages and they sold it as this title, Think and Grow Rich. And that came out, like I said, in 1936, which was right before the next uh, major market crash, which happened in 1937 for all you history buffs out there. But a fascinating book. And this this went on to be the number one selling success book of all time. So just to kind of give people a background um, what book we're discussing today, because uh, some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about are kind of obscure topics. These are things that I think a lot of people never talk about because they're a little off topic and a little strange, if you will. And so when we start talking about this, you got to realize that's the background of this book. This isn't like we're just reading some random book that's a little strange and out there. This has a significant amount of very important people out there that have contributed to this book. So I just want to throw that out there at the beginning so you kind of understand the foundation of what we're going to be talking about. So, Stig, did you have anything on the background or anything like that that you wanted to add? Uh, no, not really. Um, I think that the first thing I want to talk about is, and actually I think they mentioned it, was that these personal traits, uh, they're all free to acquire. And, and that's really a good point. I really love this. So you don't need to you know, pay a lot of money to get a college degree. That is not what Napoleon Hill is saying. He's saying that with your own mind, you can basically do whatever you want. And, uh, and you probably heard this before. And especially if you dig into more of these success books, you probably heard a lot of these things about, you know, you're putting, you are the only person who put a limitation on yourself. But basically, in, at least in my opinion, that's probably... Uh, because most books are written uh, based on Think and Grow Rich. I haven't read this before, like Preston, but I kind of felt like I read it 
like dozens of times before, uh, because um, it pretty much summarizes uh, this book, The Thing Group, which pretty much summarizes uh, like a lot of the great points that that all the authorities in leadership and and self development has. So um, that was something that that really struck me. Yeah, and you'll you'll notice uh, people like Tony Robbins. If you're a big Tony Robbins follower. His net worth's like about a half a billion dollars. He is huge on this book, on Napoleon Hill. I think this was one of the foundational reads for him in his life was this book. Another person that uh, is real big on this book is Brian Tracy. For anybody that follows Brian Tracy, this was one of the foundational reads for him. And I think that if you went back and you looked at a, a bunch of different people, a, a, a lot of different billionaires and people that have been very successful, they might not come out and say that this was the book that kind of set them on their path, but I would imagine that it it might have been, and there's a lot of people that point to this book as being just one of those key turning points in their lives. So uh, Stig brought up a great point that you don't need to have anything in order to start this journey, and as the title suggests, uh, Think and Grow Rich, it all starts with your mindset and your ability to control your thoughts. So uh, the thing that I really want to say, and I want to I want to say this key sentence for people because it's very important. The book says that your focused thoughts will actually bring your intangible desires into physical reality. So let me say that one more time. Your focused thoughts will actually bring your intangible desires into physical reality. And that's really the premise of the book is that what you think about most and what you really desire and what you want if you think about that long enough and you focus on it and you consistently go back to that thought and that idea and you do it over and over and over again, that your subconscious mind will help you develop that into the material world that you live in, in this physical world that we experience. And I think for a lot of people that might sound really, really far fetched, but that is the point of this book. Uh, so really profound, really uh, an amazing thought. And to think that, you know, that idea really came from Andrew Carnegie and some of these other, you know, enormously wealthy people. So it's not like Preston Pish is saying that or even Napoleon Hill is saying that that's coming from these these people that have had enormous success. So uh, go ahead, Stig. I see you have a point. Yeah, I have a, actually I have a question for you because there was something I really thought about when I read this book. Because what Napoleon Hill is uh, is saying is that 98 of 100 people uh, that don't have success, and that was something that puzzled me since this is a best-selling book and it was it's free for everyone to acquire. So, uh, Preston, if I had to ask you, why do you think that uh, so few people really succeed? Because you know I would argue that the ratio is probably the same today. So with all the knowledge that we have today, why do so few people actually succeed in what they're doing and really succeed? I, I definitely think that the reason why is that people would read a book like this and they'd say, oh, you know what? I agree with all that stuff. But then they never do any of the steps that he outlines in the book because, I mean, it's not simple. It's something that you got to do consistently every day. It's focusing those same thoughts, having faith, which I think is the hard part. And then we'll get into that discussion. Um, and I think that's really what separates people that, that apply this book successfully versus that don't apply it successfully. It really comes down to that faith element that they actually believe the, the thoughts and the ideas that they're you know putting or at least trying to put into their physical environment. So I guess I wanted to start off with this. So if you walk down the street and you ask 50 people this, these two questions, what kind of response do you think that you'd get? Uh, the first question would be, what are you doing today to improve your salary and to actually make it larger uh, for tomorrow? What do you think people would say? 
I think most people would just say, uh, I'm going to work. <laughs> you know, I don't think that they'd have much of a response. Do you agree, Stig? Yeah, I think they would probably say um, work overtime, something like that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the next one is, what net worth do you plan on having when you're 65 and how are you going to achieve it? What are you doing in order to achieve that specific amount? And so somebody might say, oh, I want to have $3 million or I want to have $500,000, whatever it is. I think that if you ask 50 people that, I think you'd be really hard pressed to find anybody to say a an actual amount. I think they'd just say, well, I want to have enough to be able to retire by the time I'm 65 is probably what they'd say. But they would I, I think you'd find less than one or two percent of people that would be able to say, I plan on having five million dollars whenever I'm 65 years old. Do you agree, Stig? Yeah, I completely agree. And I think there was uh, the aforementioned Brian Tracy. I'm a big Brian Tracy fan. Uh, and he's saying that only 3% uh, of Americans, they have written down the goals. And and I think that's really much in line with Think and Grow Rich. Like you need to be really specific and you need to write down goals and not just be thinking, well, it's probably nice for me to be a financial independent. It's something different to say, I need $3.4 million by the age of 65. And these are the six steps I need to take. I mean, I, I think very few people are actually doing that. Yeah. So that's one of the things that the book talks about. So asking those questions just to kind of make you think, okay, so now you're listening to this. Could you answer either one of those questions? And if the answer is no, that's no big deal because we're going to lay out the steps that it says in the book. And we're also going to send out our free executive summary on our mailing list to anybody that, uh, hasn't read the book that they can quickly go through that and they can see what the book's all about. And then if you want to read the book too, which I highly recommend, <laughs> uh, you can do that. But so here's the steps. These, these are the basics. Um, and I think there's a lot more to this than what we're going to discuss in this short uh, you know, podcast. But the first thing is, is you need to set the goals. You need to write these down and you need to know what it is that you want. Don't worry about how you're going to get that. First, focus on what is it that you want Okay. And you might want to figure out why you want it. Say you want $5 million. Why do you want $5 million? Um, figure out what that dollar amount is. Okay. And then here's the second part. What are you going to do to achieve that goal? Or what are the steps or the ideas that you have that you'd maybe like to use in order to get that? Because you can't have value without creating it first. You have to give it in order to receive it. Okay. But start with what you want. Then figure out what it is that you're going to do in order to get it. Okay. And then here's the big point. This is the key point. What is it that you're going to provide to society that's mutually beneficial for that product or that asset or whatever it is that you're going to do, that service that you're going to create in order to receive it? So say you want $5 million and you're going to stand up a new company that does whatever. How is that company's value adding to society? How is it making it better for society? And that's what brings things full circle for you to actually create this value that you desire. So this is where it gets a little bit funky for a lot of people is that uh, Napoleon Hill starts talking about the power of your subconscious mind. So everyone uh, is real familiar with their conscious mind and what they do on a day-to-day -day basis. But I think very few people actually understand uh, Napoleon Hill's position, at least, on the power of your subconscious mind. And what uh, Hill outlines in this book is that whenever you have a desire for something and that you're saying it continuously to yourself and that it's actually becoming a part of you and that you have faith in that this will happen... 
what you're actually doing is you're putting a seed into your subconscious mind and your subconscious mind is what actually brings that idea and that desire into reality for you in the material world. And so that's a very obscure idea and that's a very, um, you know, that's not what most people think or have ever even talked about, but that's something that he throws out here in the book. And so then he starts talking about in depth how you can energize and actually start planting these seeds in your subconscious mind so that you can actually make these things materialize. And Napoleon Hill talks about there's three elements that you can use to actually energize or actually create more um, gain or magnitude behind those thoughts and those desires into your subconscious mind. And he says the three things are these. He says you've got to have faith. So if you actually believe that you're going to amass a million dollars by the time you're 65 or whatever the number is, and you believe that you're going to be able to create that value with uh, whatever product or service that you're creating, and you believe that it's going to create value for society, well, then the, the, the magnitude of that thought and that desire into your subconscious mind is going to have a lot of potency. It's going to have some actual um, effect to it. But if you don't believe it and you don't think that that can actually happen, uh, you're going to have a hard time energizing and actually putting uh, use of your subconscious mind. The next thing that energizes your subconscious mind, and I'm going to say both of these uh, at the same time, he says that love and sex actually have a uh, impact on your subconscious mind and the way that you can plant ideas and desires into it. So I'm not going to get into those two uh, very much because those probably aren't my forte. Um, <laughs> I'm sure my wife uh, would have some comments on that, but we'll leave that aside. But I think the first one is really important, which is the faith in that you actually believe these thoughts and these desires that you want and that you have total confidence that the universe, your God or whoever you keep your faith in, as long as you have that faith in those thoughts and those desires, that it will actually come into uh, the material world for you. So very interesting thoughts, a very interesting discussion. Uh, Stig, do you have any uh, follow ups on that one? Yeah, I think about the about faith, and I know we'll be talking about persistency later, but I think that those two are really interrelated uh, because, you know, we all fail uh, and we all repeatedly fail. And, and one of the things that uh, Hill uh, writes in his book is that, you know, the people that are really uh, good at bouncing back, uh, these are also the people that will succeed. Um, I think there's this myth that, you know, some people just, you know, get success and uh, they really don't. Um, the curve is definitely not linear towards success. And I think that what really separates a lot of these people is that they have faith. They know that they will succeed in the end. And they're ready to take, uh, you know, to be rolling with the punches that, that life will just bring them on the, on the path to that. So I think that a lot of people might have difficulty with this piece of it. Because let's say that I'm a person uh, making a, a smaller salary. And I have the desire to amass, call it $10 million. And I think for that person, it's going to be really hard for them to have faith, even if they go through the practice of what Napoleon Hill talks about by continuing to try to plant that seed in your subconscious twice a day and doing that. I think the person's going to have a very hard time having the faith in, in their desire for whatever it is that they want. And so for that person, this is what I'll tell you. And it's advice that Guy Spear gave us on a podcast, probably 10 podcasts ago. And Guy says, sometimes you just got to fake it until you make it. And I really like that because um, 
I think that there's a lot of truth in that. I think that if, if you go through this and they talk about the idea of auto suggestion in the book where you're constantly saying it and you're constantly repeating it to remind yourself that this is a, a very important piece of something that you want. And I think that if you continue to fake that and you continue to say it, I think that if you say it enough, you're going to start actually to have faith in it and you're going to start to believe that you are able to accomplish it. And I think that you need to pay very close attention to the clues that come in your in your life, because I'm of the opinion that there are very interesting things that have happened in my life and that the universe will interact with you in a very uh, unique way at times. In that um, sometimes you're giving you're given clues and you're given ideas. And I think for a lot of people, they just write them off as being nothing or they have a dream and they just write that off as being a nothing. And I think the closer that you pay attention to those little details of things around you every part of the day, I think you're going to start to pick up that maybe you are being helped and being guided in in the direction of whatever your desires are. So I, I want to throw one other idea out there. And there's another book. If you're, you know, learning about your subconscious mind for the very first time, you've never read any books on it. There's a lot of good books out there. Uh, the one that I'd recommend that I would read together with this Napoleon Hill book is there's a book called The Power of Your Subconscious Mind. Um, I would definitely read that. It has fantastic reviews. I've read the book myself and I think it's fantastic. Um, and if you're not really understanding all the points that Napoleon Hill talks about in this book, you might want to complement it with uh, that other book. So just wanted to throw that out there. Uh, so let's go on to the next uh, piece of the book. And that was the idea of specialized knowledge. So I'm going to have Stig talk about that one. Yeah, I, I really love this because he was starting by saying, you know, professor, they, ha- they have a lot of knowledge, but they don't make any money. <laughs> uh, no, but it is uh, it is true. And I think he had a lot of good partners about specialized knowledge uh, because he says it's, it's really not the, uh, you know, the amount, total amount of knowledge that you have. It's how you organize it and how you carry that knowledge out in the world. Uh, and I think that was really uh, fascinating. And then he was talking about um, you know, I, I'm not a linguistic, so I might be wrong here, but he's saying that it's, it's from Latin, uh, educo, which means to reduce. And that was something I found really interesting. Like, you need to reduce knowledge. That's really uh, the key here. And I'm thinking here in 2015, in the age of the internet, and we get so much knowledge. And I just heard the other day that the amount of knowledge in the world that double every three years, and it goes faster and faster. I, I would say today... Um, and Napoleon Hill is right on the money here. Today, whoever is best at filtering that knowledge, and you know, I, I think there's, those people are the most successful people, uh, really. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? 
a tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions. Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. So in the book, uh, Napoleon Hill uses uh, Henry Ford as an example of this. He said, Henry Ford never went to college. He just had, you know, the high school education. But what Henry Ford knew how to do was he knew how to assemble a team, uh, assemble people together and all the knowledge together. And whenever he had all that knowledge, he was able to organize it in a manner so that he could actually put it to practical use. And he says, like like Stig said, all the knowledge in the world is is useless if you don't know how to apply it and, uh, and put utility to it for society. So, Stig, I saw you smiling. What, what did you have to say? Yeah, he's saying that college education uh, has no parents in miscellaneous. I also laughed when I heard about that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel so proud about <laughs> about what I'm doing. Uh, but I actually think he has a good point. Uh, he says that it serves rather as a medium uh, where you get to, you know, to learn how to acquire specialized knowledge. So in that sense, I'm not saying a college education is useless. And you know, if I did, I really hope my students would, <laughs> would listen to this podcast, where some of them are. But you know, I think that this is really the, you know, if, if you get an education, um, I think the, the main thing to get out of it is that you get the tool to be further educated, to get the specialized knowledge. Uh, I think that's that's really where you uh, reap the benefit of education in any way in life. Um, so so I think that then Napoleon Hill was completely uh, right about that. So the next one that we're going to cover is persistence. So this one here, I can, I can say from my own self-experience of um, trying to create a company, to building a brand, to doing all that kind of stuff, persistence is absolutely one of the biggest things that you can do to be successful. And so he's not just talking about persistence of your thoughts by going back twice a day and thinking about the same things that you desire and that what you're going to do in order to produce that, but the persistence of actually executing. 
So like Stig and I, so I get up very early every single day. If I told you, you probably wouldn't believe me. So I won't even tell you the time, but I get up very early every day to um, do the same mechanical type steps um, as far as the business, the online business, to editing, to writing, to doing all that stuff. And I do it in a very consistent manner. And I'm very, very persistent with that. And I know Stig is too. Um, He just has a different time that he actually does his persistent acts. But I think the point is this. If you're not doing something persistently, um, it's going to be very hard for you to create whatever value it is that you're that you're trying to create in order to achieve whatever goal you have. So figure something out, whether it's a half hour, an hour, four hours, whatever that is, you need to set the the time limit. And for people that are just starting out, I tell you, set a very small time limit and build yourself into it. Because the further you get down the path, you're going to start seeing the impact of being persistent. So if you start off with 30 minutes every day, I'm going to do whatever. Okay, and you do that every single day for 30 minutes, every single day. Next thing you're going to know, be like, oh, you know what? I have more work to do. So maybe I could, and you're just going to find yourself now moving that to one hour a day. And now you're doing it one hour a day. And then it's going to move into more. And next thing you know, you're creating something huge. And um, that's what's going to you know really lead to your success to be able to materialize what it is that you desire. So go ahead, Stick. Yeah, and th- this is really the trick is that you need to pay all this in advance. You really need to pay the price in advance. And I think that's really the hard thing uh, because it's really hard to be persistent when you don't reap the benefit. Uh, when you're doing the same thing, getting up really early in the morning or working for weekends or whatever it is that you're doing, uh, you know, day after day after day, and you are just, you know, you pr- probably don't see any progress or perhaps you see progress, but you can see that you, you won't reap the benefits until two, three, ten years and I think that's where most people, uh, I think this this is where they quit. And then you have very few people who just continue doing uh, what it is that they're doing. It's not because they're smarter. It's not because what they're producing is uh, better in any way, but they're just persisting in what they're doing. I, I think a lot of people have to see something tangible in order for them to think that it's actually paying off. And I think that's probably one of the biggest misnomers in life is that you have to see something tangible. There is so much intangible value that you can create for yourself that will sometimes transmute itself into something tangible later on, but you have to wait. The time element is the thing that you've got to take out of this because as you wait for it to occur, it will occur. It will be paid back to you, but it's just a matter of when will it be paid back to you. It might be tomorrow, it might be in 10 minutes, or it might be in 10 years, but you have to have faith in the fact that it will come back to you. And whenever you make that transition and you make that leap of everything that I give, I will receive. And, and it, it needs to be in that order because I think most people will just automatically think the only way I'm going to have something is if I take it. Okay. And they operate their whole lives like that. I would say a majority of people operate that way. Um, but as soon as you understand that that's not how it works and that it actually works in the exact opposite manner that you, everything you give is what you will receive. Um, I think that whenever you understand that and you understand that most of the time you have to do a lot of intangible acts or all your value is being stored in intangible uh, returns, and then all of a sudden it will start transmuting itself into a tangible uh, result. I think when people understand that, they're going to have a huge leap in their amount of success that they see in their lives. All right, so Stig's going to go ahead and introduce this next idea, and this is the last one we're going to talk about in the book, even though there is plenty more in the book that that you can learn about. Uh, The next one that Stig's going to introduce is the power of the mastermind. 
So the whole concept of mastermind group was really something that uh, spoke to me. Uh, I thought it was an amazing idea because this is about, you know, gathering four, five, six people um, that has the same values and the same goals as you. And if it helps, um, <laughs> you can think of this as AA, I guess, like you have the same goal and you support each other. Uh, but this, if it's a mastermind group, uh, you can think of it like uh, you all want to be financially independent, for instance. So you would accelerate each other's uh, learning curves, uh, you would challenge each other's beliefs, and you would open up your networks uh, to each other. So combined, you have this strong force that can help all of you to reach this uh, common goal. Now, this doesn't mean that you need to run the same business and doesn't mean that you need to do the same things. Um, but basically, this means that you just support each other towards this goal. And I think when we talk about persistency and we're talking about uh, failure, I think having a mastermind group that can support you, I think that's really what separates, uh, often separates those people who will be successful uh, from those that will fail. So I can attest to the power of a mastermind group because uh, a few years back, I started the uh, Warren Buffett Forum uh, where Stig and I hang out and we talk about just different investing ideas. And the amount of information that I have learned by participating in that forum is just, it's out of control. I mean, it was it was just amazing because I would put out an idea, then other people would shoot holes through it, or they would say, hey, here's some more information that you can read. And I've just seen that firsthand in my life, how much that's increased my investing knowledge and just my overall understanding of business in general. And it's been just absolutely amazing. Now, the thing that Stig and I are going to do that we were really looking forward to with this episode is we're going to introduce every to everybody our personal mastermind group. And our mastermind group consists of five people. Uh, it's myself. It's Stig. It's uh, Colin Yablonski, it's Hari Ramachandra, and it's Toby Carlisle. So the five of us, uh, and what we're going to do, which is going to be really fun, is every quarter, so every three months, we're going to ha- actually record our mastermind group, and we're going to play it for people on the podcast. That's going to be a podcast episode. So to do that, um, this is going to be the very first episode that we do that. Uh, and we're going to, and unfortunately, Toby wasn't able to uh, record with us today because his wife just had a baby. So uh, congratulations to Toby. For anybody that follows Toby on Twitter, you can go ahead and send him a message and uh, tell him congratulations on his uh, newborn son. Uh, but he's not going to be with us this time, but on the next uh, recording, he'll be with us. So just today, we've got four people and we recommend that you keep your close knit uh, mastermind group to about four to six people, like Stig said. So that really kind of concludes our comments for the uh, for the summary of the book. Wow, that was really squeaky. But I'm going to keep that in there. Uh, that concludes our summary for the book. Uh, like I said, we'll send out the uh, executive summary notes. And if you don't, if you're not on our list, uh, sign up for our list right there on their top level homepage at theinvestorspodcast.com. You can click there and, and sign up or any one of the episode links on the show notes. You can sign up there and we'll send out our uh, free executive summary of the book for you to read. Okay, so uh, we've got the group together. We're all sitting here on Skype is how we do this, just so everyone knows, so we can all see each other. And the topic for this uh, mastermind group discussion is going to be based on a conversation that Colin and I had on Friday 
Um, Friday, I gave Colin a call uh, because he was wanting to talk to me about something. So, uh, Colin, I'm going to hand it over to you, and I want you to describe. And just so you know, Stig and Hari do not know about this conversation, so they're hearing this for the first time. So go ahead, Colin. Sure. So on Friday, Preston and I talked because I got to a position where I was starting to feel really concerned that I had sold a large percentage of my portfolio. In fact, I'd I'd sold about 90% of my portfolio. Um, And as an investor, it's really tough to just sit on cash. Um, In Canada, we have what are called GICs, and the rate of return is about 0.65%. And so as an investor, I'm having a really hard time because I've basically pulled the large percentage of my capital out of the market and assuming that you even get a five, six percent, if it's just going to track the earnings yield, that's a, that's a heck of a tracking error on my portfolio. So I'd love to hear what, uh, what the rest of you have to say about that and what you think about that. And I'll, I'll talk about my response to him first, and then you guys can, you know, piggyback and shoot holes through that. But Stig and I have been talking about this a lot on the podcast is just, you know, if you have a very large position that had enormous capital gains, like Warren, some of Warren Buffett's positions come to mind where he had like 10 times the return of whatever he paid. That makes no sense to sell that because he's going to get hit so hard with the capital gains. Um, a lot of the positions that I had were not in a position where they were 10 times uh, the, the price that I paid at where they were trading right now. So for me, even if you had a 100% gain, which would be a 2x, um, selling that position uh, would maybe make sense if you expect the downturn to be around the 40 to 50% mark. So I told Colin, Colin didn't have any returns that were in excess of that amount. And um, I had a lot of positions that weren't in excess of that amount. And so those positions for me, it was very easy to sell out of those positions, turn it into cash. And then the the questions you know becomes where do you put it as you're sitting on the cash? Do you just keep it in cash? Do you put it in some type of tip, which is an inflation proof low duration bond? Um, and that's pretty much what we're recommending, and or, or at least what I told Colin is what I'm doing personally. Um, that doesn't mean it's the right thing, but that's what I'm doing personally. That's what Colin was doing, and I think the thing that maybe freaked you out a little bit last week, and just so everybody knows, uh, the time frame that we're talking right now is it's 22 March 2015. So if you're listening to this in the future, um, you guys can do all the Monday morning quarterbacking that you guys want to, uh, and that's a term here in the United States for basically looking back at the at what happened and and you know. It's very easy for people to shoot holes through things after they know what actually happened in the future. But you can see our thought process and how we were going through this at this point in time. So at this point in time, we don't think that it's necessarily a bad idea, or at least that's the advice that I gave Colin. But I'm real curious to know what Stig and Hari think of that position based on where we're at in the current market cycle. Yeah, so I don't know if you guys actually knew this, but I spoke to uh, to Hari. was it like a week ago, Hari? And uh, <laughs> we're talking about... What to do in the overvalued market? <laughs> that, that was the main main topic here. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely struggling with the same thing as Colin here. Um, my current position is that I am heavily exposed in, in equities right now. I think I have something like in 90% of my uh, my portfolio in equities. So this is definitely something I'm thinking a lot about too. And I don't like to pay capital gains tax uh, either, but I pay 43%. So I'm just 
I just envy you guys over there in the States only paying 15%. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's really the dream. That's a big difference. Just so everyone knows, like that's just monumental. And so Stig's over in Denmark. So he's dealing with a whole different you know challenge than we have here because he just gets murdered in, and my voice will keep cracking. I'm keeping all that in just so you guys know. So everyone that's listening to the show can laugh, but he's just getting killed over there with capital gains tax. So he's having to juggle a whole different problem than uh, Colin, myself and Hari here that are stateside and up in Canada. Yeah. And yeah, I gotta be honest. Um, I think that if, if you listen to uh and Graham and you've reached the current analysis, he's saying that you shouldn't be focusing too much about the tax because um, you know, if, if the stock you know, drops, uh, then it drops, then it doesn't matter anyway. Uh, but it's really something I've thought a lot about. And I remember telling myself probably like a half a year ago or three months ago that if I was paying less in tax, I would probably be selling before. Uh, but what has happened now is that I actually placed a few sales orders uh, on some of my stocks at the moment. I'm not uh, selling off uh, all of it. Um, I still have a few stocks that I think is, is not cheap, but you know reasonably priced that I'm you know holding on to. Uh, but for some of, the, uh, some of the stocks that have made a decent profit on, uh, even though I'm paying 43%, I think that if you look at the uh, current stock valuation of the overall market, uh, I think that you'll probably see uh, a drop real soon. Um, and when I say real soon, I don't mean like a week or a month. I don't know what will happen, perhaps a year, two years. Uh, but I think that you will see that the uh, the stock market is uh, overvalued. And uh, and just before I will uh, I'll let <laughs> Harry speak, wow, that sounded rude. <laughs> I just, uh, I just uh, pulled up a statistic I would like to share with you. So um, this statistic, that's called market cap to uh, US GDP. And uh, this is actually one of the only stock market metrics that Warren Buffett talks about. And he spoke about this in, uh, in a letter in 1999. But he was saying that this market cap to US GDP was probably one of the best measures to look at. Uh, and we'll, we'll link uh, in, in the show notes of this letter. And so if we take a look at this, uh, where we are at the moment, and right now we are at 126%. So, you know, the higher uh, it is, the, the more expensive uh, stocks are to the old uh, GDP in the economy. And when you saw the peak at 2007, then it was 110%, okay? And if you look at the uh, the bottom in March 2009, uh, it was 57%. So I'm, I'm not saying that you can just, you know, take one of these numbers, just say that means when it reaches 120, then it will drop. But it's just some of the indicators I'm also looking at when I'm seeing that, you know, at least in my opinion, the stock market is overvalued. Where was it so, at? Uh, was, uh, Stig, where was it at in 2000? Just so everyone can have that as a reference, and just so you know, a thousand or I'm sorry, a hundred percent would mean that it's right at its its absolute value or at its intrinsic value, correct? Um, I think that that uh, we actually go less. I think we'll say something between seventy-five to ninety percent. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's, it's a good measure. So. Uh, I think it was 148% in 2000. So um, yeah, we still got some some to go, but you know I think we are in this in the area right now where where things are getting very critical. Um, so I don't know how you what the, what your take is. It's getting critical to protect your principal. I think is probably a good way to say. It. And I think also, and I'm sorry, Hari, just to jump in there. I just want to say piggyback on something that Stig was saying. Um, my my biggest fear, though, from this point forward, as you as you start moving into that position, is that we have a repeat. Like whenever I look back at 1996, that was a point where I felt like I would have absolutely been preparing for that thing to tank. And then it went a whole nother four years before it did. And 
Do I think that that could happen this time? Yeah, I think it could, but I think the probability of that is pretty low. So that's why I'm more comfortable being in the position that I am right now. But uh, Hari, go ahead. Sure. Um, Kellen, you brought up a very interesting point. In fact, as Tig mentioned, uh, this is something on uh, my mind and many other investors I know. But just to comfort you, I want to read a quote from Munger, Charlie Munger, uh, Vice President of Berkshire Hathaway. He once said that it takes character to sit there with all the cash and do nothing. Uh, I didn't get to where I am by going after mediocre opportunities. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's an awesome that. quote. I love that. <laughs> so, you, you're in a good position now. So, sitting yeah. actually, Stig brought up a very good point. There are different uh, indicators that people can use to see where we are uh, today uh, or where the market is today. The market cap to GDP is one good uh, example. The other one that I use is uh, Schiller uh, P-E ratio. This was uh, introduced by uh, Bob Schiller, the Nobel winning famous Yale University economics professor. Uh, in fact, um, I will send out the link to uh, Preston, uh, you can add it to your show notes. There is a, a website which actually tracks this. And uh, during uh, the difference between a normal P ratio and Schiller's P ratio is uh, Schiller takes a 10 year worth of earnings and calculates the uh, P rather than just this year's earnings because that can have a lot of variance. And this one is more stable that way. So just to give a comparison, in 2000, the Schiller's P ratio was 43.7, and today it is uh, 27.82. In 2009, it was 15. So you can kind of, you know, make for yourself whether this market is overvalued. Where was it? Hey, Hari, where was it at in 08, though, before the crash? It was 24. 24, before. okay. Yeah, and in 2007, it was 27, exactly what it is now. And, and just so everyone knows the, the history of that, the market peaked actually in 2007. And then from 2007, it went down, uh, gradually went down. It wasn't a real, you know, abrupt withdrawal, but it went down from 2007 into 2008. And then in October 2008 is whenever it really had the hard crash. So if you would have got out in 2007 and you waited that whole year, you were actually beating the market by a significant margin during that year. So it just just in cash, you'd be beating it by a significant margin. Oh, go ahead, yeah, I, I just have a have a quick thing. It was a really good point, uh, Preston. And the the thing about this uh, Schiller's PE, uh, what I really like is that we're looking at earnings, and we're actually also kind of looking at earnings when we're looking at the other metric, which was the uh, the market cap to uh, to GDP. Because you often hear that you know this index hit an all time high or that index hit an all time high, but that really doesn't tell you anything because indexes will, by definition, if only we had inflation, by definition, these indexes will also always hit an all time high. So we also we always need to compare that to something, and since earnings will you know grow, and since the economy will grow, we will always see these uh, all-time highs, and we'll be talking about this a century from now again. Like now it's an all-time high, now we're gonna see a crash. We don't necessarily see a crash when it's all-time high, but we need to compare it to something. Is it sustainable? And right now it's not sustainable. So when I was talking with uh, Colin on the phone, the one thing that I said to Colin, I said. You know, whenever I get in these feelings where maybe, hey, I'm the outlier and I'm doing something really dumb right now, I always try to look at what are the really smart people doing. So when you take that approach and you say, okay, well, what's Warren Buffett doing with his retained earnings that he's making for the last year? 
So we've talked about this on the podcast. He's basically everything he earned in the last year has pretty much stayed in a cash or cash equivalent position. Okay. When you look at Carl Icahn, another guy that's had his, I think his returns, his annual returns are actually better than Buffett's. Uh, but Carl Icahn's returns uh, for the last year have been pretty much kept completely in cash and cash equivalents. Whenever we listen to the uh, Larry Summers, who you know is the former president of Harvard and economics, pretty much one of the greatest macroeconomic thinkers out there. Uh, when we heard his thoughts during the Davos uh, discussion, the world economic discussion just last month, he goes, well, we're at this point here and the future looks pretty grim. You know, when you hear people like that saying things, uh, it makes it a lot easier for me to continue to be that outlier by moving into a unpopular position that a lot of people, you know, are trying to drive the market higher and I'm getting very worried and scared. So that was one of the things that uh, Colin and I had discussed. So Colin, what are your thoughts now? What do you think? Well, it's nice to have uh, you three in my corner. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think it, it comes down to more of a, a psychological uh, effect that the market can have on you. And I think for a lot of first time investors, it can be really difficult when you hear so much noise and information that's just pumped out and uh, pumped out by the media. And so. Um, every single day you'll see conflicting opinions on what's going to happen over the next, you know, call it six to 12 months. Um, but I think ultimately, yeah, I, I'm of the same opinion. Like I said, I did sell the majority of my portfolio because I do take a more conservative approach to investing. Um, but yeah, it, it's still, it's still really difficult. It's really difficult to, as an investor, sit on, a large amount of cash knowing that your return is going to be lower. But ultimately I think over the next couple of months, hopefully that that will turn around and because become a more positive thing. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. 
If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear, upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. All right, back to the show. So let's take the uh, devil's advocate approach here. And let's say that the market does really well over the next two years. And let's say that it does 15% for the rest of of 2015 and then another 15% uh, for 2016. How are you going to feel emotionally and and psychologically if that would happen? If the market goes up 15% year over year? Um, So you you basically lost out on 30%. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to feel too bad. Honestly, I, I'm more interested in protecting my downside than making a return over the next two years. Um, the warning sides are there for me. There are a lot of red flags that I'm seeing in the economy. And so that's why I'm willing to take a more conservative approach. I think every now and again, you just need to rely or have a have a network of people that you can talk to and rely on and say, hey, here's here's what's going on in my own head. What are you thinking and what are the facts that back up some of the decisions that we're making? So I want to ask the group this question. Uh, How how probable do you think that it is that a person can just, you know, ride it out until the thing really starts to drop and then you can get out right before it has the catastrophic fall off the edge? Do you guys think that that's a probable path? Do you think people can do that? No, Uh, I I think, you know, just by law, uh, law of large numbers, I think a few people can do that. But I think it's really, really hard. And I just want to want to say something to what you said before, Preston. You know, I would be surprised. I know I'm talking about that we'll see a crash, and I'm pretty sure we'll see a crash. But I wouldn't be surprised if you see a 15 percent gain in 2015 and a 15 percent gain in 2016, because this is what's happening right now. Uh, when when we are building a bubble, which we are right now, you know, you see lots gains until it bursts. So uh, you know, I would be surprised uh, the least if we're sitting here again in in two years and talking about, yeah, when is that bubble gonna burst? Because I I know that you know. Um, even though we have recorded this, I've seen some of the previous uh, you know, email correspondence I had with Preston uh, from 2013. And you know, already back then, we were talking about warning signs. We're not talking about that we saw a bubble that was just about to burst, but we we're talking about that you know there weren't so many great deals out there. Um, so you know, you know, things can last for years before they burst. Yeah, I think you got a good point. And I think that people just need to be prepared for that psychologically. And, and for the person that's worried and they're chasing the top, I really think, and I say this analogy all the time, I say, you don't make a lot of money from the 75% mark to the 100% mark. You make all the money from the bottom when it's down at like the 25% mark back up to the 75 or 100% mark. That's where you know real professionals make a lot of money in the stock market. And so for me, I'm just not, and I totally agree with Stig when he decisively said, no, I don't think that you can get out right before the thing falls off the cliff. And I would agree with that. I mean, having gone through 2008, like, uh, yeah, it's not, it's not as simple as people think as far as just getting out and knowing what in the world's coming, coming next. It might be a 5%, 10% downturn, then it comes right back. So, um, I think that that's very hard to do, but 
I always err on the side of caution and trying to protect my principal. Like Colin said, uh, Hari, would you got something? Uh, so, Christian, you brought up a very good point. Like you make the uh, like you know, the best of your returns when from six, say twenty five percent to the sixty percent mark. The question is, how prepared are we to invest when things are all kind of you know doom gloom and doom and gloom? Like, how many people invested during two thousand nine recession when Wells Fargo was seven or eight dollars uh, in Wells Fargo? So that's the question. That's when Buffett was investing. So we should ask ourselves when we are selling out on the top, how prepared are we to buy at the bottom? Yeah. See, I had no problem with that in the last one. I I really uh, found it quite fun during the last crash to um, be getting involved in some of the, the buys that were out there. It was just amazing what, what some of the offers were. And I think for anybody that's, you know, got involved in the stock market or investing in the last couple of years, you really haven't seen how much of a bloodbath it can actually become as far as the values of some of these companies. And you can, you can buy companies at just unbelievable prices. Um, I will tell you, looking back in hindsight during the 2008, 2009 timeframe, one of the best things that I think I could have maybe done was invest in an index of that industry that was really troubled or that was looking very dark and, and scary. So, um, I think investing in an individual pick, you know, for that industry, the banking industry was just disgusting in 2009 timeframe. And so uh, people that were investing in individual picks, I think they were assuming a lot of risk because it was really hard to know what was actually on these companies balance sheets. But um, if I had to go back in time and do that over again, I might have invested in like a banking index during that 2009 timeframe to to offset my risk across the board. And then that industry was, you know, if you invested from 2009 till now, you would have had enormous gains. So I think if you would have offset that risk by doing it across an index and for this next crash, you know, who knows what the catalyst is going to be. But um, if it's an industry type catalyst, I would recommend that type of um approach so colin you got anything yeah, stig no everyone's quiet i think that the something that you just brought up is is really interesting and and you said about the catalyst uh what what do you think is going Greece. to be the trigger <laughs> <laughs> that was quick <laughs> no i think it is i i think that it's going to be something in europe that's the trigger that's my personal opinion stig what do you think yeah, I agree with you. And uh, and before the show, I looked up a few numbers. So um, I was looking at the debt situation in Europe because that's really interesting. And you know, I I look at the U.S. and I see two months debt, but then I look in my own backyard and this is, <laughs> I mean, the U.S. with all that debt they have over there, it just looked like heaven. Uh, because we have <laughs> countries like you know, France, Italy, Spain, the U.K. You know, some of the largest economies in in Europe. We're missing Germany, but they they have things under control, but those four big economies in uh, in Europe, they have more debt to GDP than they have in the U.S. Um, and then you have smaller countries like Portugal, Greece, Belgium, Netherlands, and Ireland. They have even more, but they are smaller economies. And for instance, what is interesting about Greece, because you know you might be sitting, you know, somewhere and thinking, Greece is that really that important? And if you look at the numbers, Greece, that's only three percent of the GDP that we have in the European Union. So you might be thinking that's not really that important, whether or not we have 97% volume, 100% volume. But it is really important that um, you know Greece will survive uh, for the stability, because if Greece doesn't survive, then you'll just see a chain reaction. 
then I'm, I'm then you'll see you know Spain, uh, you see Italy, and you see France, and you're just pulling each other down. Then you see a lot of speculation also. So it's not only about you know small country isolated problem. It's about that in a globalized economy, and um, you know all those all those countries they're just interrelated. So it's really really hard just to uh, isolate the problem. And uh, and Preston, I see you have a comment there. Yeah, so I really think that this whole issue that we're facing right now is a currency issue. Um, particularly the euro, I think is really in a bad place i'm not going to say that it's going to fail but i wouldn't be surprised if it failed um i'm reading a book um, by richard Koo, who is one of the best economists out there um he's a japanese gentleman uh that wrote uh he originally wrote this book called the holy grail of macroeconomics which went through and uh talked about uh this 20-year recession that they had over in japan and how their stock market basically lost 75 percent of its value during that 20-year period and he recently wrote a new book called The Escape from Balance Sheet Recessions and the Quantitative Easing Trap. I'm currently about halfway through that book. And in the book, he talks about how um, the United States is in a very, very similar situation that Japan was in during the 1990 time frame. And what I find really interesting is he doesn't even know how to describe the Europe situation with the euro. Like, he just basically writes it off as they're this thing's just a mess and I don't have any idea how they could possibly get out of this is pretty much the way he describes it in the book. And this is probably one of the best writers on the subject out there. So I really think that the catalyst is going to be how that all gets resolved. You know, we saw last month that they decided to kick the can down the down the street until the summertime for uh, what they were going to do with Greece. And the market had a surge that day, which I just thought was hilarious because I saw it the exact opposite way. Like, OK, yeah, let's just give them more money and pile that more money on top of the more money that they already owe. And we'll just figure this out someday in the future. You know, like that's how I interpreted that solution. Um, we can either deal with the reality that this thing is a mess right now, or we can add to that mess and then try to clean it up later. Uh, and that's what that's what they're doing right now. So it's there's going to come a point where Germany's tired of fo- footing the bill and all these other countries that are footing the bill and they're going to have to pay the piper someday. And whenever that happens, I think that's going to be your catalyst. But that's just me. I think any of those countries, though, I think Italy's got huge issues. France has huge issues. Uh, Spain has, I mean, you look at every one of their total debt to GDPs of each of those countries, and it's a mess. So, uh, Hari, what do you have? Um, so, I just wanted to <clears throat> bring this point up. Uh, in, in his book, uh, The Black Swan, Nassim Taleb writes that it's usually what gets you is what nobody has seen. And this this is the black swan that he talks about and not the one that everybody kind of knows already that is a problem. So I just want to put it out there that, you know, the Europe debt issue, like, you know, is so well publicized now that most financial analysts and most of the people in the market know about it. So my main fear is what else is there that we don't know? And that might be the thing that will get us, like the housing bubble. Very few had seen it before it came. How did you like that book? Because I've been meaning to read that book. I know that's one of Jeff Bezos's favorite books, but I haven't read it. I have probably read it like three times now. (laughs) So it's good. All right. All right. I need to put it on there. Stig, we'll do an episode on that. Sure. Yeah. You know, we have so many problems in Europe and definitely one of the big problems that is our growth. So uh, last quarter we grew uh, 0.3%. So that's not impressive. And especially if you compare it to the U.S. Um, what is it present like? 
three, four percent, something like that. Yeah, the the GDP growth in the U.S. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's two percent. Really? Wow. Yeah, so it's it's really horrible here. And so what we see here is that we're talking a lot about quantitative easing. So we're basically printing money. And basically, what the last last thing I heard was that we just you know increased our um our projections for 2015 from 1.3 to 1.5 now. And apparently, some politicians are happy about that. And you know, what was the trigger for that? Printing more money. I mean, that's really not a sustainable situation. You know, it was just completely, um, you know, dilute the currency, and we have a ton of problems with that too. But you know, we are not fixing the problem here. We're just, you know, putting out fires. And yeah, that's Dal- later. This that's Ray Dalio, and you guys all know this because you've all read the Ray Dalio stuff that we've been talking about. But that's Ray Dalio's big thing: is that the interest rate has to be below the GDP growth rate. And when it's not, that's when you run into some major issues. So that's why, uh, and this is something that my anticipation as we go through the next 10 years is that interest rates are going to continue to be this low. I don't think that they're going to be going up anytime soon. I know whenever you look at interest rates during the Great Depression timeframe, like they remained at near zero clear into, I want to say the mid 40s and 50s. And even then it was like at 3% at the highest. So what do you guys think? What, like, you know, if you think of probabilistic, like you know, outcomes um, of what is happening in Europe uh, and in general economies in the world. Uh, what are the probabilities? Um, is it inflation going out of control or is it Euro breaking up, causing massive disruptions in the global economy? What are your thoughts on that? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, here's my opinion. I'll give it real fast because I want everyone else to talk. I think that uh, Ray Dalio is right in saying that the only lever we have at this point to fix this is with currency. But the issue you run in with currency is if you inflate it to the levels that you need uh, to actually have an impact and to stimulate the economy, uh, you have to do it at a very large scale. So when we look at the amount of quantitative easing we did during this last crash, it was an enormous amount of money. It was one third of our um, total GDP for the year. Okay, that's enormous. And we were able to do that because we changed the reserve ratio of the amount of credit to offset that. But the problem with this next crash is you don't have that luxury to offset it like you did on the last one with taking more credit out of the system. So that leaves you with a very... A uh, small currency lever that you can play with, uh, let's call it 10%. Okay. So, do I think that inflating the currency by 10% over like a five year period is going to have enough uh, stimulus to get the GDP going again? I don't. Um, do I think that the government's going to inflate it more than 10% at a pop? I don't think so. So, that means my anticipation and like i said this is all so hypothetical my anticipation is that this is going to be a long drawn out uh recession that occurs i think it's going to be a real slow gradual i think it's going to be longer than the ones that you've seen in the past like the one in 09 nine months later it was already on its uptrend coming back up again i don't anticipate that with this one i think that it's going to last longer than a couple years to be quite honest with you and i think that it's going to be that anomaly that most people haven't seen in their lifetime And I think that that's going to be a huge upset. So my concern as we go through this, whenever it occurs, whether it's a year, three years, whatever, whenever it does happen, I'm going to be real slow to enter back into the market because I anticipate it to be a real slow, slow drawn out uh, recession period that that it takes to hit the bottom. Yeah, you know, I'm uh, 
I could say that I would probably let, you know, Colin speak because <laughs> I really don't know about that. Uh, but, you know, I always like to guess. So, uh, so th- you know, this is this is my guess. I think the, the first thing to, uh, to really pay attention to is that we are at the end of a uh, long run debt cycle. So we have this, this, these short cycles. And, uh, you know, we talked about this in, in, in our uh, mastermind group. Uh, before uh, we start recording, so I know I'm completely sure that you are uh, completely follow me on this. But you see these short-term cycles, and these are typically, you know, between five to eight years. Um, on average, there are seven years. So, so let's first talk about that. If we go back seven years, where were we? 2008, and then seven years before, 2000 or 2001. So, uh, I mean, I, I definitely not gonna say that you know, you can just you know uh, go seven years ahead and then you'll see a crash. I mean, that's not how it works, but we definitely always have some ups and downs. And I think it's about time that, that if we look at the numbers, we probably see the end of a short run, uh, short term cycle. And then if you look at, you know, the more macroeconomic factors, then you see that we are, uh, you know, on the end of a long term debt cycle, especially as we discussed earlier also in the podcast, because you see this very, very low interest rates. So, but I think it's going to be extremely interesting since we can't, you know, uh, put stimulus into the economy uh, by lowering the interest rate this time as we could uh, in the last time uh, is what will happen. And what I think will happen, and <laughs> this is really my answer, but what I think will happen is that we will see this long drought this, that Preston was talking about. And we will see asset prices just all over simply because people can't figure out what things are worth. And uh, for those of you that can remember what happened in, in uh, 2008, we also saw, saw some of this happening. So for instance, in the banking sector we are talking about before, it was impossible, at least for me, but it was impossible to see for most people, um, the, the balance sheets of these banks, it was completely intransparent, you know, where, where all the bad debt was. And because we, we don't have really an option to, uh, to regulate the economy as we actually did have the last time. And what I think is, is even more problematic uh, today is I have a hard time figuring out where the growth should come from. I think you can see back then in, in the last crash that, that you have a lot of uh, uh, economies in Asia that were you know really doing a lot of good things and really you know pulling the, the world economy ahead. But I, I can't see that now. The only thing um, I can look at right now that looks you know reasonable, stable to me, uh, that's the U.S., and, and to be quite honest, it, it's not a pretty sight. It's just because it looks worse when I'm sitting right now. You know we're in a great position when the U.S. is the best looking option. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's super interesting because if, if you watch the Ray Dalio video, when he gets to the, the point where he's talking about the long-term debt cycle and he's got this illustration of this lever, he's talking about interest rates and how once you get to the bottom, you can't pull that lever down any further to stimulate the economy. And I think that that's the position that we're we're very quickly approaching. You know, austerity measures in terms of reducing your debt, who wants to save money, uh, the redistribution of wealth that can have an impact, but not a one that's going to solve the problem. Defaults is something that I can certainly see becoming more frequent and then printing money. So when you when you print more money, though, you're going to inflate the currency, which I think is is highly likely and is something that's going to to most probably happen so well hey guys let's wrap it up there um i'm sure everyone's uh tired of listening to us yak here but um that was really fun i i'm glad that we recorded that so we can document our positions and i'm sure you know in five years we're going to play this back and listen to this and really laugh at some of our opinions so 
Um, but it's good, though. You have to go through those discussions, those mental gymnastics to try to make sure that you can understand it better. And to be honest with you guys, I really don't like when we agree on things. Um, I feel like I get a whole lot more out of whenever we don't agree on things, especially on the forum. And uh, for anybody that's on our forum, uh, I guess I'm looking for somebody to shoot holes through some of my opinions and some of the things that I put out there. I'm not looking for people to agree with me. I want them to tell me why I'm wrong. And that's one of the beauties of these mastermind groups that I've discovered through the years is that if you're open to suggestion, which you should be because that's how you can increase your knowledge, these things can be enormously beneficial because you can get all the different vantage points. And whenever you see things from different vantage points, that's where the truth lies. So um, it was a great discussion. I think that uh, everyone will get the utility out of a mastermind group. And that's why we're doing this is to demonstrate to people the importance. Uh, but think of who those people are in your life that you can surround yourself with that have these unique skills that can help you develop this mastermind uh, to help you achieve what it is that your goal is. And that's what we were talking about in the first part of our uh, episode. And so when you look at our mastermind group, so Stig and I, our expertise is in finance, although Colin and Hari are can definitely jive on the finance uh, piece, their expertise are in different areas. So Colin, he's an expert at marketing. He's an expert at uh, search engine optimization online. Uh, Hari's an expert at programming and, and executive leadership. If you look at Toby, he's another guy who's an expert at uh, investing, but he's also an expert at law. And so each person in our mastermind has a unique skill set and they bring a different vantage point. And that's what you really want to find in the mastermind that you assemble and that you orchestrate. You don't want everybody to be an expert in the same exact thing. So that has a very unique benefit. Uh, as you move forward and as you discuss your topics. Another key point that I want to highlight for the mastermind is that you can't bring people in that have an interest in getting something from the other person. When you look at our mastermind group, we truly are just exchanging ideas. Like uh, Some people might think that I pay Hari for this and then Hari pays me for that, but it's not like that at all. Our relationship is purely a friendship type relationship where um, we sit down and we talk on email, we call each other, we just, it's its almost like hanging out with friends, even though we're in all different locations, like Hari's up in San Francisco, Toby's down in the LA area, Colin's up in Canada, Stig's over in Denmark, and how many of us have met in person for, uh, just three of us have actually met in person, which is amazing. Just shows you the power of the internet. But uh, so when you're assembling your mastermind, it doesn't have to be people in your town. It can be people that you've met online. It can be just an expert in whatever field that, th that you're trying to understand better. But uh, that's all we got for you guys uh, for this week. Um, we're not going to play a question. We'll play a question from the audience next week. But uh, we really appreciate what everyone's doing. And if you have some thoughts or you have some ideas about this mastermind group or the, the book Think and Grow Rich, be sure to send it off to Stig and myself or come on to our forum and talk to us there. We've got plenty of ideas and different topics there that everyone can talk about. So uh, really great having you with us. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. 
This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application.